Hey guys, it's Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend and co-host of the Real Blend podcast, here to introduce another bonus episode of the show, this time on behalf of the new film Chevalier that is coming out to theaters. Now, we've been talking about this film since it had its debut at Toronto last year, started building some early buzz, uh, primarily because of the lead performance uh, by Kelvin Harrison Jr., who's outstanding as this essentially virtuoso composer and violin player who is making a noise um, at a time in France's history where there's a ton of stuff going on politically and how he's able to sort of cut through the dramatics of that with using his um, musician, his musical skillmanship to get through uh, and touch the different audiences that are out there waiting to see the next big thing coming up. Um, we spoke to, on behalf of Chevalier, uh, writer-director Stephen Williams and Stephanie Robinson, uh, who are a terrific team that have a lot of great stories about the making of this film and bringing it through the film festival circuit. Uh, I know you guys are uh, are going to be really excited to see this film when it comes to theaters. So we wanted really uh, to get these guys on the show and talk about their process uh, and talking about how difficult it can be when you have a film that's driven primarily by music and not as much dialogue and how music can almost fill the space um, of dialogue in a film like this, but also just Getting a period piece that appeals to a modern audience, but still says some really important things about what's going on uh, in the historical era where it takes place. So without further ado, with Chevalier coming to theaters, we want to do this bonus episode with Stephen Williams and Stephanie Robinson on behalf of the new film Chevalier. Good. Um, I know it's been a long day. We'll try to hit you guys with some things you haven't heard yet. Uh, <laughs> awesome. We're excited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephanie, I want to start with you because um, the performances and there are several performances throughout the course of the movie um, and, and they are dialogue free uh, largely, uh, but they have to say a lot. They have to convey a lot of emotion. And I'm just curious inside of your screenplay. Um, how much of it you spelled out uh, versus because you could write like they play the play, play the violin <laughs> and then it's just left alone. How much did you sort of color in the narrative? Oh, man, that's a that is a really good question and not one we have heard today. So <laughs> <laughs> I win. I got to up my questions now. <laughs> um, You know, we went through so many drafts of the script. I, I, I have written and rewritten this movie more times than I've ever done um ever done and and I, I think that um in each draft I think what Stephen and I really wanted to preserve was just like a level of interiority for the characters to actually have an opportunity to bring that x factor right like to, to or to elevate the performance in a way that they didn't need to be spoon-fed what was happening and I, I think we're both believers that Actors are great collaborators and they're going to bring to the words and to the camera much more than I think we ever right. anticipate that they're going to do. So, and Stephen, you had said this before, and I think it's so true in just like the way that I I try to write, which is, like you said at one point, I want to make a silent film, right. meaning right. that, you know, if you were to just hit mute on the film, the that the story would would be so clearly conveyed right. and you didn't have to actually literally spell out every single part, whether that was through dialogue or through um, blocking specifically written into the script. So I, I think to answer your question, um, it was a little bit of a game that I played between both. There were some scenes where it absolutely made sense to be as prescriptive as possible and as detailed as possible. And there were other times where it's like, you know, I, I think this needs to breathe and and um, 
I'm happy to I'm happy to leave this scene as scant as possible. And that to mm -hmm. me also feels much more powerful and leaves space for the actor to actually color in the blanks for themselves. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Steven, I want to talk about how you determine whether or not an actor needs to do the thing that their character actually does. When an actor plays a basketball player, you kind of need them to be able to play basketball. But if an actor plays a pilot, they don't need to know how to land a plane. So when it comes to Kelvin, who is phenomenal, and it looks like he's, I mean, I, it looks legit. How do you determine whether or not, like, look, dude, you need to practice or like, ah, oh, it's cool, we can fudge it. I mean, look, for the record, Joseph Kaczynski may take issue with your question because he's seen how to fly a plane. <laughs> That's very true. Okay. I'm sorry, are we going to use Tom Cruise as the bar? <laughs> I'm not saying I'm Kaczynski, but... <laughs> oh, no, that is too, Stephen. Chevalier Maverick, I'm ready for it. <laughs> wow, I like it. I like it. The sequel. <laughs> um, uh, it was really important to me that... Uh, I mean, it's a key question you've asked. It's really important to me that Kelvin learn how to play the violin. I did not want to do, I personally feel like audiences are way too sophisticated today. And if I was to have used a stunt double or, you know, cinematic, rely on cinematic trickery, it, the audience would have sussed that out, uh, you know, from jump. And that was something I totally wanted to avoid. I wanted to do everything that I possibly could to immerse the viewer in Joseph's subjective experience as he uh, traversed all the narrative beats of our story. Mm -hmm. And that meant, and I also, part of that meant that I wanted to limit the use of editing. I wanted to limit the number of cuts. I wanted to shoot in long takes, long unbroken takes, where it became clear that you were watching someone do the thing that the movie was alleging they were doing. And uh, in so doing, you would be identifying uh, more closely with that character and that character's journey mm -hmm. than you would be if there was the distancing of montage. And so that was a really specific choice. But of course, it required that the actor <laughs> was... A, willing, B, capable of learning how to portray a virtuosic violinist. And fortunately, Steph and I chose uh, exactly the right actor who, in addition to all the other requirements of the role, acting requirements of the role, was prepared mm -hmm. to put in six months of six-hour days learning how to portray this incredibly uh, amazing and kinetic um, and energetic violinist in 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 our in our history, and so what you see in the movie is all Kelvin Harrison Jr. It's not a single stunt double, not for violin, not yep. for fancy. It's all Kelvin, um, and uh, and I I hope it makes a difference. Otherwise, I just tortured him needlessly. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, that actually leads exactly into the question that I wanted to ask you, which is uh, because I I thought he was just magnetic. I could not take my eyes off of him. Uh, in every scene that he's in throughout the course of the movie. And I'm curious when you are kind of like mid shoot or even at the beginning of the shoot and you realize you're getting an actor who's giving you something special. Do you change your approach at all to maybe like re storyboard stuff and think like, I got to show him more. I have to use more of what I'm getting here because this is really unique and, and this is a special performance. Um, did that happen here? Have you ever had to do that in the past? Mm, that's a good question. Um, 
Not really. And I'll tell you why. First of all, Steph and I made the very clear decision from the beginning that Joseph, there's not a scene in the movie that Joseph isn't in. Right. He is our guide through this story. He is the person in whose footsteps we walk as we walk ourselves through this story. So he, that was by design. And in terms of your question about previous, uh, have I ever had to do that before? No, uh, because I, I, I kind of approach everything the same way, which is I have a very clear idea. By the time we hit the floor, I have a very clear idea about what the visual grammar is going to be and what the approach is going to be. And I feel like, yes, you want to maintain a certain kind of looseness for uh, to take advantage of any sort of improvisational or improvisatory moments. Um, <laughs> happy accidents. Let's avoid the imp word and just say happy accidents. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and you want to be loose enough to do that. But at the same time, I think that you want to have a very kind of specific point of view and you want to commit to that. And you gamble all chips in on, on, on that way of, um, you know, uh, telling the story so I, I mean in terms of kelvin's performance we were just like just grateful every every yeah, day that he was showing up with that level of yep. commitment and focus mm -hmm. yeah magnificent guys whenever you are telling a story that is based on a real person and based on real events uh just by nature of having to squeeze it all into two hours sometimes you gotta fudge some real details sometimes you gotta squeeze real events together sometimes you gotta you know go left and when the actuality he went right but what is how, how do you determine as storytellers whether or not a detail is uh, in the ballpark of we can mess with this it's okay it's not important versus no this needs to be true to what actually happened Ooh, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. Honestly, it's, I, I think it's intuitive. I think it's just what feels good. I think that early on, like Stephen and I, the staked our claim in the script and we made ourselves the authority of the story. Um, and we treated it with respect. We, we treated it with dignity. And we, you know, endeavored to do so every single day. And, and I think that we did that. But um, I think the interesting thing about your question is that from the get-go, we never wanted this to be a cradle-to-grave story. I say all the time, I never wanted to write a Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. So you can look at Wikipedia yourself. You can go listen to some amazing podcasts about Joseph. I write movies. I get paid to write movies. I like watching movies. Like I, I, I want, you know, I like, I love, you know, I love a cinematic story and there's a conventionality to the story. And I don't say that in a negative way. I say that in a way that I think Stephen and I really wanted to embrace this story from an operatic perspective, operatic, not meaning spectacle for the sake of spectacle, but operatic in that conventionality that it's, it's for the masses. It's for everyone. Like when you come in, um, and you watch this movie, you clearly see the hero, you clearly see the villain, you're 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 pulled in by the romance, you're pulled in by um the anger and and the injustice. And that was the most important thing on top of, again, trying to be as spiritually true as possible. When I say spiritually true, does that mean sometimes exactly as you said, do we, you know, fudge some of what really happened? Do we condense it? Do we we attribute actual facts to different characters or maybe characters that, you know, didn't actually exist in, in the framework of how they existed in real life? Sure. Um, but I we wanted this movie to just feel like a movie. <laughs> and there's something sacred and special about movies and how we tell these stories. And that to us, I think, 
was king on top of you know of, of honoring joseph and if something wasn't factually correct it's like do we feel like this is spiritually truthful is there yeah. something kind of we weren't trying to make a documentary you know <laughs> like uh and so you know steph has heard me say this a million times so apologies to her for having to endure it. hearing it again but this is <laughs> just this great tom stompard quote that you know we came across early on that became in many ways our kind of uh gave us permission to approach the story in the way that we did and that quote is facts are facts but truth is something else entirely and is a product of the imagination and i subscribe to that mm. notion and i think candidly we all do if you tell stories about your relatives or your childhood friends you're not recalling those events without them being filtered through the prism of your own emotional and psychological perspective and you know if we interviewed all of the other people in your stories they would be like no 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 it wasn't I, I, the bike was not blue it was red uh you know <laughs> and uh but it doesn't matter to the truth of what you're telling. It may be factually inaccurate, but it's still true. So that's the mm -hmm. that's the 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 place the hyphen that we reside yes. in. Yes. <laughs> Whenever my dad catches a fish, it's all he always remembers it being much bigger than it actually was. And I was like, yeah, come on, you know, I, you know, I was there, you know right? What's truthful, he caught the fish, and there was dinner on the table that night. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Stephanie, I was watching some of your interviews from Toronto, and you uh, mentioned something that really struck me while I was watching it, which is that so many of the themes that are prevalent in the movie feel very contemporary. And, you know, as I was watching certain things play out, I was thinking this doesn't have to be a period piece. And then I think I actually heard you say specifically like this doesn't have to be a period piece. As you were researching um, this man's history, what was the one that surprised you the most that you were just like, I can't believe that that is taking place during this time period because it's still so relevant today. I think, oh, gosh, I, you know what? Like it was the registration of black people coming into France. Like it was mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. so like at the time that we were reading about this stuff, it was just so blatantly really paralleled true. with, 
the um, illegal immigration conversation we were having in this country, like a lot of the rhetoric, rhetoric was just nearly word for word, exactly the same. Wow. They're going to come here, they're going to steal our jobs, we need to register them, we need to keep them under control. Um, you know, we're going to lose the purity of our nation if we, you know, open up our borders to anyone who doesn't look like us. You know, this we our religious religious values are at stake. Are at stake. Our French values are at stake. And it was like, wow. Like, I mean, it's a heavy. It's obviously an incredibly heavy, disturbing, multifaceted topic that we're not going to get into now. But just how similar. <laughs> It was yeah. was just like wow, like this is that's really true. You're so right on. About so that. like, I mean, it was just the same thing with Code Noir and what they were doing in France, like just calling for the registration of, of yes. um, immigrants coming into the country. Yeah, mm-hmm. the fact that you can take this screenplay and set it in so many different periods of history and so many different places around the world, I think, uh, says a lot. I do want to um, circle back to and follow up on because you, I, I do love the idea, and that's the reason I do love this movie so much is because you guys made a movie and you didn't do the Cradle to the Grave documentary, which I think is fantastic. We had a director uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago for an action film, and he said that um, before he started making the action film, he put a line down a whiteboard and wrote, "What do I love about action movies and what do I hate about action movies?" And so I had him tell me what all the things he he hated. I wanted to know what are the things that you put on the right side of the board. So for you guys, what are the things about uh, period pieces, these genre films that honestly, just as movie fans, you can't stand. And as you guys started to put this film together, you went, no, we're not going to do that. This is such a good question. Things I can't stand about period films. Oh my God. Like, um, a lot of the times it is the music and the pacing. Like that is something that I like, I, you know, has become synonymous with period films and why I think some of them get a bad rap is because you sort of inherently think, oh, this is going to be slow or whatever. And this is sort of why I think we um, subconsciously and consciously tried to inject so much music and movement and pacing into what we were doing to try to give it that contemporary feel. So it didn't feel like it was so, you know, yeah, far away and that it was sort of like inaccessible. That's the, that's the thing, that gesture that Steph just made. Yes. That's the, the masterpiece theater thing is like, is distancing. You're watching it from a remove and this is obviously a generalization there are many period pieces that are um Mm. that don't run afoul of that but in terms of your question the ones that do from our point of view are like you know they're proscenium they're at a distance and i think that that's a fundamental flaw because what it denies is that those people in those in that period when they were living their lives. They weren't living, they weren't going, man, one day people are going to look back on us and say they're in a period. They're, they're living in a period. It was their <laughs> They're now, they're present. And sure. so I wanted viewers and we wanted viewers mm-hmm. to feel like, oh, these events are unfolding in the now for the characters that are in the movie. Mm-hmm. So that would be that and too, yeah. too many horses. Ask about cars back then. At what point in the process, though, does Kira Knightley call you and ask you why she's not in it? <laughs> you know what? We'd be lucky to have her. Lucky to have her. Lucky to have her. <laughs> Chanel number five commercials. Oh, yeah. Kira Knightley. Yeah, man. <laughs> Joe Wright should step aside. <laughs> hey, I would watch your Pride and Prejudice. Believe me, I would like, I would like to see you tackle that. 
<laughs> you know, so Stephanie, I think people who know your credits uh, probably expected something different coming into this. They might have expected you to lean a little more into comedy. You think they maybe uh, expected vampire dick jokes, right? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. There's still time to slide one into this movie. You can do some pickups. And, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I'm curious because Shadows obviously started as a movie and then you guys figured out how to turn it into a TV series and, and Atlanta is a TV series. Um, do you have any interest whatsoever in maybe doing a one-off Atlanta movie with that crew? Oh, always. We talk about it all the time. When we need more money, we'll just write a movie. <laughs> <laughs> the motivation. Yeah. <laughs> that offer is always on the table. Absolutely. I mean, and that would be the perfect show to do that with, I think. Like, I mean, we could we could probably make, you know, 20 movies with those characters and, and have it feel new and fresh and insane each time, I think. Uh, guys, there's something that, that I love doing. I'm, I'm talking to you from Chicago, and there's something that I love doing every couple of months. The the CSO, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, they have this series that they call At the Movies, which is you go, you sit down in the theater, they play a movie on the screen, and the, and the symphony um, plays the music alongside the movie. And as I was watching this film, I thought, God, this would be a perfect movie to do something like that for, which sort of made me think, like, at what point do you guys start thinking about, because once this movie's out there, like, it's kind of... I don't say it's not yours, but like it belongs to everybody. People can do whatever it is that they want to with it. I'm sort of curious how that feels as an artist, sort of, you know, the idea that like you could create something and people could do something cool with it or like a, a moment becomes a meme or like with that feeling of letting go of your baby and letting other people kind of mess with your own art. Well, you know, it's terrifying, but it's uh, in, in my experience, it's always completely rewarding. I mean, talking specifically about what we do in the shadows, like the amount of fan generated art, uh, clothing, fan fiction. Like, I'm serious. Like some of this stuff, I'm like, you guys got to write on this show. Like, you know, I hear you. But it, it's really like, oh, man, like, I mean, it's obviously always daunting. And we were talking about earlier, it's like when you do sort of release anything to the world or as you're crafting something that is hopefully going to be shared with people, I think there's a little voice in your head that's like, man, I hope this resonates with someone. And there's always the terror, at least for me, that it absolutely will not. <laughs> um, so... Um, I think any way that fans or, or, or the community can can engage and sort of take it and continue the conversation, I say that it's job well done. I don't know, was, on Watchmen, did you feel like there was a lot of like, I mean... Terror, yes. But I mean, <laughs> it was just like, oh my, like I was so, it's so deep into Watchmen. I know so many people were and like, uh, um, you know, obviously it's based on pre-existing material, but did you see like a lot of... Like, yeah, I mean, but for me, I'm just kind of like, I mean, first of all, I'm not tapped into like social media at all. You gotta get on it. Have you um, heard of it? Social I've, media? I've heard of it. But it's um, really only brought us together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I look, I'm trying to be a grown up. And by that, I mean, you know, there are things that you can control and the things that you can't control, you need to let go of. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to get to that place. I can't profess that I'm there, but I'm trying to get to that place. Um, Stephen, before we run out of time, because we are kind of um, into the nuts and bolts, we like to ask questions that we know our audience is super in tune to. And we're, we're the types of geeks who, when we're watching certain scenes, we're just we're, we're staring into the background. We're paying attention to certain things. Uh oh. 
You have, is you have, seen, yes, there are water bottles, exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. exactly. <laughs> Starbucks cup. Uh, <laughs> you, you have scenes with, with many, many extras in costume. And we both, you know, we all know that, that there are times on a movie set when it's just waiting. Um, talk to me about a day on Chevalier while you're working in it, when you just knew the extras had to be standing around in costume waiting. And what the challenge of that uh, is to, to be able to like, know when it's time to go because it takes so much time to build up to the moment when you're ready to shoot. That's a very uh, multifaceted question for the following reasons. First of all, we shot in Prague during COVID. Mm, Processing of all the background people through COVID testing and Mm. meeting every COVID protocol already added like, you know, an hour and a half, two hours to the day. Then uh, no names, but the director of this piece insisted on shooting, as I mentioned before, in very complicated, long takes that required, in most cases, hours of rehearsal wherein there was no shooting happening, much to the consternation of uh, beam counters and stereotypes. <laughs> and so I feel like maybe the background was probably waiting for me more than I was waiting for the background. <laughs> <laughs> the ego on this director who will go remain oh. nameless. <laughs> it wasn't about ego, though. No, it wasn't about ego. It was just about, okay, well, this feels like the only way this story can be best told. So now we have to do it. Well, yeah. we're very excited for people to get a chance to see it. Um, we want to thank you guys for coming on the show. Hope we hit you with a few things yet. You didn't get a chance to talk about There's yet. So today. many. You this guys were a great job. I'm very impressed. <laughs> thank you Go so ahead. much. Wait, I didn't you. get to ask what attracted you to the project. You like our hearts I know you have me. You have me. It's like no, really. We're out of time. We're out of time. That was my next one. Yeah, guys, thank you so much. Appreciate it, guys. We want to thank uh, Stephen and Stephanie, of course, for coming on Real Blend and joining us. And I do want to put this film on your guys' radar. You know me. I'm not a huge fan of period films, but the way that they approach the material and again, Kelvin's performance uh, in the lead of this picture is truly outstanding. And it's one of those films that I think is going to seriously benefit from seeing on the big screen. And we say that all the time, but it's the Dolby sound for this one because so much of it is music driven. Uh, You'll see it's it takes the sort of what you would assume is sort of a stodgy period piece, but injects it with so much um, attitude and energy that I think it it elevates it above the type of films that you see in this atmosphere. Uh, we'll give a full review in the main show on Friday. In addition, on the main show, we have a director, Dexter Fletcher, who's going to be coming on to talk about his new Apple TV Plus film Ghosted, which stars two up and comers you might have heard of before, Chris Evans and Ana de Armas. Uh, of course, Dexter did Rocket Man, which we talked to him about and um, a bunch of other stories from his filmmaking history. So you're going to want to hit the main show on Friday. Uh, we are available all the different places where podcast needs are met. We're on YouTube as well, too. Uh, so make sure you give us a like and a subscribe over there and keep it locked in for all things Real Blend. <laughs>